1: I also work with gender-questioning teenagers and I facilitated support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues.
0: We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture.
1: Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens.
0: Susan Bradley is Professor Emerita at the University of Toronto. She graduated with her medical degree in 1966 and completed her residency in psychiatry at the University of Toronto from 1968 to 1972. In 1975, she became the founder of the Gender Identity Clinic for Children and Adolescents at the Clark Institute of Psychiatry. In 1985, Dr. Bradley handed over the head position to Dr. Ken Zucker, who we interviewed in episode 59, She co-authored or authored over 50 articles on various forms of psychopathology, including gender identity disorders in children and adolescents. After stepping down as the psychiatry-in-chief at the HSC, she spent almost 20 years consulting to the children's mental health agencies around the greater Toronto area, with a special interest in children with autism spectrum disorder who are high-functioning. Dr. Bradley retired in 2010. This conversation was an incredible opportunity to hear Susan give her extremely informed, long-term perspective on gender nonconforming children and their treatment. She describes what she calls the naivety of early clinicians who put too much trust in the endocrinologist's eager but scientifically weak recommendations. Looking back, she worries that puberty blockers were just facilitating transition, and she wonders if many of the dysphoric children that her clinic saw actually had undiagnosed high-functioning autism. We discuss the cognitive rigidity associated with autism, as well as the laser-like focus some young people have when they're seeking medical transition. She also shares her thoughts on the new population of ROGD kids, and describes the cult like aspects of social media transactivism. Dr. Bradley was honest, incredibly knowledgeable, and this conversation gives us all much food for thought. Here's our discussion with Dr. Susan Bradley. Hello, Stella. Hello, Sasha. How are you? I am great. I am so, so thrilled to announce perhaps the pioneer of pioneers, Dr. Susan Bradley. Um, she's been in the field uh, far longer than anyone else we'd interviewed. She was actually a mentor to Dr. Ken Zucker, who we spoke to several weeks back. So Susan, we are so grateful to have you on the program. Welcome. Thank you.
1: So where do we begin? <laughs> you tell us, Susan, where do you think we should
2: begin? Well, I'm I'm happy to discuss the the founding of the clinic and, and sort of what we did in those days, if that's sensible. Um, i I don't yeah. want to go
1: on too long because it may it it may not be relevant but um, well we've a lot to cover but it, it's really interesting to hear the beginning and to hear the arc okay and and you can you can edit this I presume <laughs> um, yes.
2: uh, when I um, first uh, had, had just finished my psychiatric training I had a position at the then Clark Institute of Psychiatry and was assigned a team of two social workers and myself and uh, around that time the head of the adult gender identity clinic uh, sent a notice to our chief saying uh, we think there should be some effort to work with children who have gender identity disorder uh, because getting people when they are adults, which is what they were dealing with, may be later than is uh, optimal. And I did not have a particular interest in, in this. i just curious
0: to interrupt you here, sure. Susan. It may not be optimal for aesthetic purposes, or for what, what reason might it not well, be optimal? I, I
2: think at that point they were thinking we could actually prevent it. I think that's what they... The, prevent them oh, needing to transition if we saw them as children. I think that was their thinking.
1: Uh, what, so, what, what sort of... Got it, What sort of year was that? And that was
0: 1975. Okay. Okay. So back then, people were actually trying to prevent the need for transition. Yes, or at least that's right. what they yeah, thought of. We okay, were continue doing. on. Sorry for the interruption. Okay.
2: I... I um, when I was in my residency... Um, I had uh, found myself seeing a, I think at the point she arrived, she was 16, who came in saying uh, she wants to be a man. And I had never seen anybody with this difficulty before, but we began meeting and, and uh, I, over a period of time, um, helped her in the transition uh, to uh, surgery and and, uh, all of the things that she had to go through. Um, And I have followed that person who is now gotta be in her 60s. And um, uh, he, sorry, um, was was able to marry the woman that he had uh, been best friends with as a teen who had uh, had two failed relationships but ended up with two children. And um, my uh, patient at that point, uh, I don't think ever considered just doing, being gay or being lesbian and uh, engaging in that kind of relationship uh, with uh, his now wife who's now deceased but uh, they they did they they got married uh, he transitioned and um, has had a reasonably successful life um, with his partner uh, and her two children uh, she died a couple of years ago after their one son uh, died and My patient, my former patient, um, really had a very tough time with that, and he had never gone through phalloplasty uh, earlier, and he decided at that point that he needed to have a phalloplasty, and I found myself again signing papers for uh, the surgical stuff, and he has gone through all of this, (laughs) And continued to let me know how he's doing. We we exchange greetings regularly, so I it turned out for me <laughs> to be a very interesting situation, and and I I couldn't necessarily say that that he was the reason our team decided uh, to take this on, but I I know that the two social workers were more uh, interested in. It because it was novel, I think, at that point. And uh, so we ended up being the gender identity clinic for uh, the Clark Institute at that point. And I had the good fortune of having three uh, grad students, they were postdocs at that point, uh, psychology, uh, come and work on our team. And they all contributed very significantly to what we were doing. and um, so it, it was not at all difficult when Ken Zucker uh, indicated that he wanted to to stay on in this area because he he had already become very invested in the research connected with it, and I knew that you know he had those skills that I didn't have. So he. Uh, really took uh, this on seriously and made his career out of it and I, I honestly believe he's the the best academic researcher in this area in the world um, uh, he might not claim that title but I, but I really think that there's nobody with his list of uh, of publications but just getting back to the kids that we began to see um, we didn't have any kind of uh, framework to understand these kids. And although we recognized that they weren't really typical, we didn't know how to what to call them. <laughs> and I ended up calling them borderline personality disorder, if you can believe that. Um, partly because I could see times when they were really uh, almost dissociating. It, it was Um, some of the things that they would do struck me as really quite unusual and there was no framework because I didn't know anything about high functioning autism at that point. Um, and so we continued to try to work with them and their families and the families, um, really had, uh, difficulties in in terms of managing that child and now now that i've you know gotten into this area of high functioning autism i i've become very um concerned my daughter and i have written a book we still haven't got it accepted for publication really a guide for parents uh with these kids because oftentimes they're labeled in many different ways (laughs) hard to manage is probably the the most obvious one but they have this these periods of dysregulation which cause a lot of parents to get angry and frustrated and don't know what to do uh, oftentimes they see it as uh, purposeful behavior they don't understand the sensitivity of these kids and
1: so um, can, can I just ask just could I just yep. ask one thing just while you're on that subject you said earlier that you kind of uh, in your mind almost labeled them as borderline um, and are, are you now saying that they were high functioning autistic? Yes, yeah is that and your... He, yeah, sorry just I just wanted to be clear and make sure the listeners knew that that's where you're coming from
2: well and and there is a um, there's literature out there of a lot of people who are beginning to say, we think the borderline personality disorder is actually uh, the adults who are high-functioning autism. And I agree. You know, the more I sort of uh, put two and two together, uh, the more I decided, yeah, that does make sense. And uh, so, but that was my learning uh, as we were going on. It it wasn't, I, I honestly didn't feel I knew very much about all of this, uh, but we muddled along, and Ken was so um, instrumental uh, in doing all kinds of uh, testing uh, of the population. So we had reams and reams of data that really informed us about, you know, how, how do these parents look compared with parents. Of other children, other clinical populations, and they looked more like parents of other clinical populations than they did like the normal population. Um, and, you know, some of that may be that some of the parents were also high <laughs> functioning autism because these things uh, do tend to be uh, genetically uh, moderated. But uh, the uh, the, the thing that we ended up doing, mostly, was this business of watchful waiting, uh, which you mentioned <laughs> when we were talking about the social transition. We we knew that these kids um, were prone to getting stuck on ideas, and, and I'm going to give you an example that Ken has used and got awful criticism for it, but it's, but it's a real thing. <laughs> you know, every once in a while we would hear of kids who thought they were a dog or a cat or somebody or other like that. And as you mentioned in that uh, one audio you were doing, uh, that, you know, parents would not think twice about saying you can't be a dog or a cat. And, but it's very different when, they say I I want to be a girl or I want to be somebody else but I'm giving you that that example because we did see a lot of kids who had these funny ideas and we didn't necessarily you know put a label on that other than my confused borderline personality disorder but we were, uh, most of the staff, and a lot of the treatment was actually done by all of the psychology um, interns that we had with us. We were very fortunate in, in always having a, a good collection, and, and most of them actually stayed um, after their doctorates were done, um, and not with us, but, but around uh, at either sick Kids or the Clark, and uh, it, it allowed Ken to collect all of this data that he has since, you know, rigorously analyzed over time and given us this picture of the population uh, with their difficulties. We, we, in our naivety, I can say, uh, did find certain themes when, when we were seeing these kids, which we thought were relevant. Uh, with the girls, there was a rather consistent... Story that they felt you couldn't be strong as a girl, that they felt their mothers were not able to stand up to their fathers. And in fact, there had been some of the situations where there had been outright conflict, and uh, the kids saw it and decided that, you know, I'm not going to be female like my mother. And that seemed to uh be not uncommon and and it, i i saw that in several adolescents whom i'd seen that they had actually been sexually uh assaulted or abused and then subsequently they decided there's no way i'm going to let you know anybody see me as a female that they can do something to <coughs> excuse me these kinds of themes were seemed relevant um, and and I mean, when they were seen in therapy, we uh, obviously would work around some of those things if it was relevant. Uh, And the, the parents, I think for the most part, were thoughtful enough that they did try quite hard to understand their child and be more supportive of them without accepting the notion that they were going to necessarily move on as they thought they were going to. And this gets into the social transition thing. So the majority of them felt, with our with our support, that they, they really should not encourage the behaviors. They didn't have to really discourage them, but they shouldn't really encourage them, which is, for me, this fine line when you're doing the social transition thing. Uh, we worked reasonably hard on getting the kids to have peer relationships with same-sex peers as one way of trying to give them more of a sense of how to relate to other kids uh, successfully. Um, We... It's noted, I guess, in our book that you've probably seen that um, we felt that a lot of the parents had difficulty, at least initially, uh, validating the child and uh, again, I get back to the complexity of raising a child in this high functioning spectrum when when they get dysregulated um, Unless you know where that's coming from you c- It's very hard for those parents to, to react to that in what we would consider was an appropriate kind of way so it um we were able to support them. I guess that's really what I'm getting at. And to help the child try to think of other ways of being a little boy or you don't, you know, just cause you're like that doesn't mean you can't be a little boy. Um, the kinds of things you mentioned a little bit in the, um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> this is my GERD. It's awful at times. Um, when you talked about the non-binary stuff that, you know, helping them see that boys can be boys in a whole bunch of different ways. Girls can be girls in a whole bunch of different ways. You don't have to be the standard version of whoever <laughs> thought of boys or girls uh, as having to behave. So there was a sort of loose kind of uh, acceptance, validation, but but not necessarily encouragement. Um of those behaviors, I, I have a, a story to tell you. I uh, I don't want to bore you, but the, we were following this young man who uh, who had been in child care when he was younger. He'd had a very tough uh, early childhood, and he would come in, oh, at least once a year. We would do a follow up on him, and and he consist he continued to looked to us as though he was was on track to transitioning. And uh, after I'd finished um, working at the Clark, one of the agencies uh, up here where I was working is where he was, and he was in a group for GLBT kids. And uh, he, I I get feedback from the people helping him and working with him, You know, that he was okay, um, but everybody assumed he was going to transition. And one day he came, uh, I was entering the building, he came and he was coming out, and I looked at him, I said, geez, you know, you're looking great. (laughs) I said, I don't need to be trans anymore. And I looked at him. What had happened is, In the group that was run, you know, organized for gay and lesbian kids, he had met a gay boy and they fell in love. And the acceptance that he felt in that relationship was all he needed uh, for him to say, I don't need this. (laughs) And, you know, it was those kinds of early experiences that made me think there is so much malleability here. And we gotta work with it, and and uh, give kids the opportunity to make a decision. Now, that doesn't mean that we had some kids who went on, and certainly we we were doing puberty blockers um, right after the Dutch got doing it. We started doing it, and I remember um, very much being somewhat concerned that we were facilitating. The idea of transition, you know, that we were back to the social transition kind of notion, and
1: encouraging could, could, it. Could I ask you what 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 year was that that you were doing the puberty blockers?
2: Oh, it must have been the early
1: two thousands. Yeah, around
2: around there, and uh, you know, we we went through all sorts of hoops about, um, you know, is this really reversible, and you know, what what's going to happen the endocrinologists were fairly uh, encouraging saying no you know it's okay Uh, and we not being well educated accepted that and uh, obviously the literature since then would suggest that it's not very simple but um, and, and what does discourage me is now when I see the literature about if Kids go on puberty blockers; they're pretty sure going to go on cross-sex hormones and so on. Like, I mean, that that stream has just solidified in me that we uh, we thought we were helping them, buying time, but we we obviously were probably making it worse. Um, however, uh, the 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 processes were not in my mind. Uh, particularly sophisticated. We were doing the normal help the pre- parents in the relationship with their child don't make it worse, allow them to, to think about things um, and proceed. And with uh, the follow-ups study that Davida Singh did of the 100 boys in our sample, the the majority of them, I, I think we were up to 90%, did not transition by the time they were late teens. And uh, I think that because we weren't promoting social transition, because we were being pretty laid back about, you know, how you can be a boy or how you can be a girl, um, it, it it didn't promote something until we got doing the puberty blockers. And then I think we were into a different kettle fish. So...
0: May, may I ask? You talked about your first patient, the sixteen-year-old girl, before you had opened the gender identity clinic. Yeah. Knowing what you learned in the, the the following years, do you feel like you would have done anything differently with that patient had had you gotten a, a kind of do over? You know, I, I, if I had had access
2: to a gay and lesbian. Uh, support group for teens. I would have asked her to go to a gay and lesbian support group. <laughs> and you know, I've talked to some uh, lesbian friends of mine, and uh, they've said, "Oh, uh, we haven't exactly thought that you know we could do much about this." But I think there there are opportunities for these people to emerge as gay and lesbian, and and that to me would be absolutely perfect (laughs) Uh, but you know you you can't say that's what you ought to do Um, but you have to give them the opportunity to find that somebody loves them I guess is the only way I can put it somebody will validate them for who they are they don't have to be somebody different that's
1: I think what I would have tried to do if I'd had access to that I think that's lovely. And we, we spoke to Stephen Levine, and he spoke very eloquently about love and the power of love and the power of the human connection, which kind of pretty much falls in with where you're going and, and falls in very much where I think myself and Sasha go as well. I think it's underestimated. Love is a healer. It's certainly been a healer in my life to an extraordinary degree. I always wonder, and maybe you can answer this we are well aware that, okay, a certain section of these children grow up to be gay. We're, we're pretty sure yeah, of that. Yeah, we're also yeah. very aware that there's a very high uh, rate of autism among these children. Is there a, a defining theme or pattern among the children who grow up and transition? Is there a defining theme on those children, if you follow me, rather than, let's say, the children who desist? You
2: know, um, I, I when I, I was listening to your thing on social transitioning and, and uh, some of the the ways you were trying to pull it apart um, in just in terms of what does it do uh, for them. And for some of them, it, it it is a solution to their mental distress. And, you know, for these kids who are cognitively somewhat rigid, finding a solution, you know, somebody who said, oh, yes, you know, you must be, that answer has got to be very freeing in in terms of self-validation and so my my sense is that there are people who go through the transition who do get that out of being well uh, of the transition and and are happy enough this this person that i spoke with you about um I don't think he's had any regrets whatsoever um, but you know we're going back I would probably have had difficulty trying to convince him that being lesbian or <laughs> lesbian was a reasonable outcome at that point because socially it was not very acceptable uh, you know in this is way back in the 1970s well early 70s and uh, so, some of these people feel they, they don't have any other solution. And if they can make it a solution, that, that they can find somebody who validates them. This, this man that I'm referring to, really, in his relationship with his wife, felt very validated. Um, she had been in two failed relationships before they hooked up in their relationship. And he was just one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. So uh, I, I think that you know it becomes what do you do with it, <laughs> and and when I've talked to some of the de- sisters or seen so you know some of the stuff on the internet, uh, you can see that some of them make their way out when they find a, le- a, a lesbian. I'm talking mostly about the, the females a lesbian relationship that works for them, but I think some people can find something in the transition where somebody accepts them for who they are, and and I think that's gonna work. But I think it has there has to be something like that to make it work, is my view.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for this show, and we're grateful to Rhyme and Genspect for supporting us.
1: RIME, or Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics, is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit RethinkIME.org to learn more.
0: And Genspect is an international alliance of parents and professional groups whose aim is to advocate for parents of gender-questioning children and young people. If you'd like to
1: become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts and special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Now back to the show.
0: Susan, you also talked about cognitive rigidity, and you've alluded to high-functioning autism in several places, and I'm thinking about a conversation we had recently with Uh, British psychotherapist, Az Hakim, and he used to run these therapy groups for individuals pre-transition and post-transition. And he observed that the more cognitive rigidity and autistic traits a person has, the more content sometimes they were with the transition because it kind of gave them that direct concrete solution. Um, and I've heard you speak uh, in, other inter- in another interview with Dr. Deborah So about high functioning autism. And I'm wondering if we could just spend some time. Can you describe what you mean by that? And, you know, in my work, as I was sharing with you earlier, I realized more and more and more that a huge percentage of the kids I work with have these traits that are very easy to miss unless you have a highly discerning eye and really know what you're looking for. And you said, you know, you used to label these kids borderline and now you think they had high functioning autism. So what are those traits that you were observing?
2: Well, if you go back and uh, get a childhood history, nearly all of the kids show some evidence of uh, extreme sensitivity uh, often to physical things but also to things that don't go the way they expected it. And that tends to lead to meltdowns uh, of different kinds. Now, you don't see the, the physical meltdowns in the kids as they get into being teenagers, but they're they're having the the dysregulation and manifesting it in anxiety and depression and other kinds of psychopathology. So it, it's their their extreme difficulty re-regulating themselves when they get distressed about something. And one of the things that for me was different about the anxiety or the depression or, or the suicidality is that it, it wasn't typically a prolonged uh, kind of preoccupation. It often occurred following some incident or, or insult or something that they were upset about, and they, they would uh, react to that with their uh, dysregulation and get uh, suicidal thinking. And, and oftentimes we would admit some of these kids to hospital only to find that, you know, within a day we were, we had them back out again because it, it wasn't the prolonged preoccupation that you often see with people who are suicidal or seriously depressed for other reasons. It, there, there's a, uh, a reactivity about it um, that comes from this problem with self-regulation, the, the other components, I mean, we've, we've mentioned the, uh, the cognitive rigidity and they really can get stuck on believing that if they have thought of something that uh, makes sense to them, regardless of whether it makes sense to other people, they're right and and the other people are wrong and it can be very hard for them to let go of that and that's where, um, you know, the idea of finding a solution gets reinforced by the cognitive rigidity because they they uh, glom onto that in a way that really uh, keeps them safe. And I think this controlling kind of bit, like people will talk about them as they become older, as, as sometimes very controlling. And, and a lot of it is that they, they get very uncomfortable if they don't have control. So that's partly their way of managing their, their, uh, uh, dysregulation. Um, they, they don't know what to do if somebody really corrects them or says, no, you know, you're not right or anything like that. They, they can't tolerate that very well. And you know, the obvious other things is they, they really don't read other people well and they will do and say things that are really not appropriate. Uh, they can often get into wanting to get back at people for things. And, you know, some of these kids, I mean, we're talking about the kids with uh, gender identity disorders, but I actually have seen some kids who have these traits who are at some risk to getting into serious um, uh, behaviors around uh, getting at people. And if you look at some of the, the people who've done Serious things like the van attack in Toronto. I don't know whether you've any familiarity with that. That man was labeled as high functioning autism, and and a number and the person who did the Sandy Hook murders was also labeled as Aspergers. So some of these traits go one way, some of them go another way. Some of them get depressed, some of them get angry, um, but. It, my strategy was always to go back and ask well tell me what were they like as children how were they in primary school because the, the, the most of these kids had difficulty maintaining friendships and that's because they didn't really get the give and take of a friendship like they didn't and they oftentimes uh, struggled with group efforts like they were also bright. A lot of them were very, very bright. And, and when schools would emphasize, this is a group project, they would get very fed up <laughs> with the other kids who didn't know what they were doing or didn't participate. And, and they didn't like group work at all. So they would go off <laughs> and do it themselves. And there, there were a lot of these kind of definers that if you look closely enough at it, you, you could see what was going on. And, you know, the others, some of them even had some very typically autistic things that you could see if you asked about it. Um, some of them continued to do things like toe walking, even when they were uh, getting older. <laughs> A lot of them got quite obsessed and, and into repetitive activities. You know, they, they could tell you everything you never wanted to know about something or other. Um, but you had to ask about those things. That was the way, because nobody came and told you, you know, <laughs> you know, this is what I'm like. And in fact, they didn't really want to acknowledge a lot of that stuff. So, um, Susan,
0: I, I wanted to ask about another thing that I've observed and just kind of get your thoughts on it. I think, too, sometimes... Especially in the contemporary kind of adolescent onset gender dysphoria population, I meet a lot of kids who have a very hard time interpreting social dynamics and therefore have a really hard time understanding themselves. And so they're almost constantly analyzing and referencing what is one supposed to do in this situation. And it's a really big challenge with figuring out who I am. And when you have kids who are also using the social media influences and information to try and figure out who they are, they almost become so porous that they will adopt any kind of identity from outside and have a very hard time grounding themselves in a stable identity, which to me reminds me a bit of the borderline traits that you first described. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I'm wondering if if your work encountered kids like this, because these are not necessarily kids who are assertive or aggressive. These are kids actually who are cowering in a corner, blowing like a, wind, a leaf in the wind.
2: I think that's bang on, and, and particularly of the girls. Uh, they have struggled. Um, nearly all of them have felt that they didn't fit in in public school or elementary school. And then when they get into all of the social complexities of being a teen and, and going through puberty and the, the the social stuff that goes on between young teens now to me is excruciating. And uh, they, I mean, I would have had trouble with a lot of it. And uh, I mean, I, I, I heard Stella talking about what she did the other day and I thought, you know, a lot of people who are just uh, kind of straight shooters can't get into some of the complexities of who, who's who and who likes who and you know, all of that stuff. And the majority of these kids are immature. Like their interests, I've had so many of them. You know, they're almost still playing Barbie dolls when they're twelve and thirteen. I mean, that that's an exaggeration, but but they don't know how to get in, and they they try a lot of things. They hang back on the fringes. They hope that somebody will, you know, be their friend. But but, and then they get hurt really easily because. They may try to be a friend of somebody and then that person sort of moves away from them and they're just devastated. And it, that's the kind of climate that they're struggling with and they don't know what to do. And so when they meet all this stuff on the Internet, you know, if you question who you are, because they do question, you know, is it me or is it them? What's happening? What am I doing that's not right? Right. And somebody says, well, you must be trans. <laughs> well, what does that mean? You know, it's, again, a solution that makes sense and allows them. Somebody thinks I'm okay. Uh, and, and that's uh, a very powerful thing for them, struggling with all of that teenage stuff, uh, which is really powerful.
0: So you, you started to make these observations, um and piece things together. And you said earlier, you know, we were, we were somewhat naive in, in the way we were analyzing these cases. So I guess kind of take it from there. Like what happened? You started to introduce puberty blockers and you wondered about whether or not that was a facilitation of transition and then kind of like keep going with that chronology. Well,
2: uh, we could we continue to do it and partly, partly because the, the Dutch group were doing it, and we had a lot of connections with them about it and I discussed all of these things. But, you know, it wasn't until everything sort of blew up with the trans activists that people actually started looking at puberty blockers. And, and you know, if you, if you start on them, you're going to stay on them, and you're going to transition more easily, that that was just the kind of information that I thought, uh, you know, (laughs) it confirmed my, my worst worries. The, the other part of it too, was that, you know, people and the trans people were using this. And and I think not, and the, uh, the affirmative approach people were using it that, you know, these kids are all suicidal and we're going to stop them being suicidal. Well, you know, we then started to get follow-up data that even those people who transitioned were still suicidal. And um, So a lot of the longer-term outcome, you know, there's still individuals who have Autism Spectrum Disorder. And if you look at that population, suicidality is, is right there, right at the top. And you don't take that away <laughs> uh, by transitioning or anything else. So... It, I uh, I really have begun to put this together in my head uh, as a result of what these kids have been going through and and the data that has emerged. And and now, you know, with the uh, worry about puberty blockers, not only in terms of the long-term effects, but possibly also the shorter-term effects on their sterility and, and a lot of things like that, that we were not really in the know about um we were too trusting and uh this is
1: medicine and and how it evolves um so could i ask you you know the puberty blockers so you you must have been tracking them if, if, if it started in the early noughties did you notice a lack of maturity when they didn't go through puberty not body maturity kind of emotional and cognitive maturity if they took puberty blockers, you know
2: I can't answer that, Stella. In in part because I didn't do the follow up of the uh, the teens. Uh, so somebody like uh, Devita or Ken would have been on, more on top of that data than I was. I wasn't right in the clinic uh, when we were, you know, following these kids up. We we would have started it, but not had enough. I I guess, awareness to see anything that was really dramatically different. But I think it's a reasonable question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's always sticking in my mind because, and also the out of sync, the out of sync of these children. And we saw it so well with Jazz Jennings as she started to grow up and all her friends were starting to naturally just, they became obsessed with boys. I remember it myself. And she just wasn't. And she wanted to go back to you could, from what I could see, she very strongly seems to wanted to, to go back to we're just friends and we're not obsessed with boys and you know, and she felt it looked to me like she felt very out of sync with them because she just didn't have the raging hormones that was making them become absorbed in boyhood. And by the way, Susan, I did hear you on the Jazz Denning programme. I was very excited because I was watching it. Um I've just been watching the entire series recently. And they started talking about how there was an expert coming on the radio and Jazz Dennings was there. And who was it but you who came on to tell them that it was 80% of the children uh, would grow out of it and that they could be gay and stuff. It was a great contribution you made to that program.
2: Well, they got rid of me very quickly. I don't know whether you saw the end of
1: it. They said, we've had enough of that talk. Um, they did, but you landed it because you made the point, and <laughs> you could see the shock in their faces. And yeah. then they quickly said, "That's junk science." But it was—I thought it was really powerful. You just came on and just said the facts without any without any agenda. Just like this is the data, and it, it was a very powerful for me. It was a very powerful part of the of the series. You know,
2: Stella, to go back to your question about maturity, though, I I think you know these kids are immature. Uh, And so puberty for them, I think, is a very different experience than it may be for kids who are uh, more socially sophisticated and mature. So uh, whether or not uh, putting them on puberty blockers makes them more immature, I I think it would be hard to to answer that question, like to to do the kind of follow-up about it because of their basic immaturity that we're starting with.
1: When did you first see uh, the social transition coming in as a serious and common treatment option? When did you notice the kind of the arc of social transition? Because it seems to be now, like even in Ireland, it's it's huge.
2: I, I think that was Jazz Jennings, uh, honestly, uh, because prior to that, uh, everybody was very cautious about That kind of thing and you know that this is where the trans uh, lobbyists have been very successful in uh, taking over something and using it to move their agenda along Uh, unfortunately in my view uh, with little regard for the people who are being impacted but uh, I think that's what's happened
0: So, Susan, just to help me with the timeline, at what year approximately did you leave the world of working with gender identity?
2: I think it was about 2010, somewhere in that. It was just before Ken got uh, ousted. Um, I think that's around the time. Yeah.
0: So that's right before the kind of boom that we see when you look at the graphs of the numbers. They just kind of spike up so high around 2012, 2013, 2014. So I'm, I'm sure you've been kind of watching all of this uh, happen. Um, what do you What do you think about this unbelievable change, not only the sex ratio reversal, but the astronomical numbers of teenage girls skyrocketing?
2: You know, I, th- I think it, this wouldn't have happened if we didn't have social media, in my view. It, it's that conjunction of um, access, widespread access to social media, so that somebody can look something up, get an answer, and then find a support group. Um, we didn't have that before, and I think that's what's really got it going. But, you know, once it started... I don't know whether you have any recollection of some of the earlier cults, um, the Jones cult. And uh, there were a number of cults um, in North America that really pulled vulnerable people in and, uh, well, (laughs) eventually killed them in the Jones cult. But, you know, it, it feels like a cult to me, like... You know, we we will be your best friend forever if you transition and become one of us. That's the way it seems to work. And they're desperately in need of that kind of support. Uh, People who validate them and think they're good. And uh, I think as therapists, the, the challenge is to find other ways to help them feel validated in relationships. And, you know, initially with their parents, you both talked about your experience working with parents. And if parents can learn to validate them and and not overreact to some of those kinds of things, I think that's a start, uh, but, but they've got to get peer validation. Uh, I think that's really critical.
0: I'm often telling parents, you know, I would suspect, you know, of course there's no formula, but I often say I would suspect that if your kid developed really fun, healthy, enriching peer relationships with a group of kids that wasn't obsessed with gender, you'd see a lot of this fade into the background. Um, And so I I really resonate with what you're saying. You said, um, Susan, that it's important for parents to validate their children in other ways. Can you expand on what you mean by that?
2: Well, you know, these kids, like all kids, need to feel that certainly as they're growing up, their parents are understanding them, supporting them, uh, loving them. And I know that most parents say they do that, but it, it can be very hard with the behaviors of some of these kids for parents to know what to do and how to do it and not get frustrated and angry. I have, over my career, had experience with certain situations where some of these kids have been able, um, one of the colleagues that I work with for years, her daughter was clearly high functioning in the, the autism spectrum, but she never really put a label on it she was gifted and she got in to gifted programs and the gifted group (laughs) hung out and they validated each other. And, you know, they, that was the, the glue that they needed to say, I don't care about somebody else. This is my group. And that's what kids need. And, and if these kids can find some some opportunity like that um i think we've got a much better chance Uh, we as adults can't do that for them that's that's part of the problem Uh, i mean they do need to have something that they can do with peers that makes them okay he's a good person or she's a good person you know um you know that we're great uh we, we played a lot of tennis when we were younger, <laughs> and, we, and I'm always watching tennis. And some of these young athletes have some of those traits. I uh, swear to you, if I, if I could do a... <laughs> it's But having some of those traits is what has allowed them to work as hard as they do and get to where they are. And so you can see that there are real strengths in this <laughs> if we can validate the strengths and, and get them doing something that's uh, good for them.
1: Uh, and that's the challenge. I think that's such a good point about sports, people. I, I'm, I like sports, too. And I agree with you. A high, high level sports person needs such focus. It's such an unhealthy life, frankly, because yeah. it's just you <laughs> burn everything For the sake of that sport, what you will do for a swimmer or a tennis player. And also, I've often made in my own mind an analogy of, you know, transitioning is almost like the child going to, in Ireland, like soccer would be big. It's like sending the child off at 10 to a kind of a high level professional soccer club. (laughs) <laughs> and they go and live, and they do soccer for the rest of their life, and that's all they are. They're soccer, soccer, soccer. That's their identity. And my God, if it works out, they will be phenomenal. But if it doesn't, <laughs> make a lot there of will money. be very little left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. they'll make a lot of money. But and, like, uh, 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 did you ever read Ag- Andrea Gassi's book? Um, he's the no. sport. He's the tennis yeah, star. Yeah, yeah. Agassi, I always say his name wrong. Andre oh, Agassiz. Uh, oh and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I
2: th- was thinking of the runner. No, you? I
1: read, I've read uh, uh, Agassi's
2: book and
1: uh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. And no. he, he was bred to become that, that tennis player, as were the, the Williams sisters. But what happened was when tennis took away, when tennis was taken away from him, there was nothing, there was nothing left. His identity was, was zero. It was empty. And that's what's frightening, I think, for anybody who who, who transitions or seeks to transition. They, they cling on to that identity. There is nothing. It's like the ballet dancer. There is nothing without that identity. And it's it's a big gamble. Yeah. You, you look at, at Sissipas. I don't know whether you follow
2: that, but he has some of the, the oddest uh, mannerisms. Uh, you know, he would start beating his head with his racket and doing stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yes. And Djokovic. Yeah. Djokovic is pretty weird. Um, so,
1: oh, the, but, yeah, the, the, All the tennis players. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I'm going to write uh, them all off. I've diagnosed them I, all. <laughs> well, uh, but especially, you know. Well, not write right, them off because they have great strengths,
2: yeah. but I yeah. definitely categorize but, them. Sorry, go on. But the young people coming in, you know, uh, the Bianca Andrescu, who's one of the Canadian women, at some point she said, I'm 21 years old. I've never done anything that a normal 21-year-old does. You know, you, you know, I, I, this is where there's the the strengths of it. If they can be used, we can help these people find something. But not everybody's going to be, you know, a genius or or particularly good at everything. But I, I think we need ways of finding a niche for all of these kids that will make
0: up for what they feel they ha- they ain't got. You know, I'm thinking about, at least in a contemporary landscape, a lot of the kids you're talking about, the gifted kids, the really bright kids, the kids who have a special interest, if you go to some of the places where those kids hang out, you find that a lot of them are trans-identified, or they identify as non-binary. So I think it's really tough for parents because... A lot of the parents I work with, I have a feeling they might be different from the parents you encountered early on in your work, Susan, but these are families who are incredibly validating of their children, and they're actually afraid to upset their children sometimes, and they are bending over backwards, looking for drama and theater clubs and art groups, and they, they can't find a place where there are going to be other kids who aren't also fascinated by gender because there's, I think, an intellectual curiosity that these smart kids have about all the labels and the definitions and the cool flags. Like, it's very catchy. So it's it's a challenge, I think, for parents to find those spaces to validate their children's strengths.
2: I think you're right. that, And this is part of the change, the shift over time, that uh, because the trans kids will have you know uh, occupied spaces like that and and so mm-hmm. you you can't just find um you know a normal gifted program without kids who may, there may be more in that program than would have been before mm-hmm. i think it's inevitable
1: i wonder a little bit about um like we know there's a combination let's say if they're gay and if they're gay and autistic they're immediately much much more likely if you follow me but um, is there many children who are, let's say, like myself, bringing it straight back to myself, who, who was neither gay nor autistic? Is that why I grew out of it, I often wonder? Because I always thought it was like, had I been, I, I had gender issues as a child and I was very intense about them. And had I been lesbian, I think it would have just, that would have been it. I, I don't know where my brain would have gone. And had I been autistic presumably it's the same and it's like i wonder if there's many children who are just either not autistic or not gay who transition i wonder is there any <laughs> i'd go so far as like you know what i mean how many is there is it a tiny
2: i number? i don't i i can't answer that because i think what has happened now is certainly different than what we were seeing 20 years ago that because yeah. of the i call it an epidemic um, uh, it, you know, if if you look at Lisa Littman's stuff, where in one class you've got three or four other kids who are all saying, "Yeah, I'm trans too," that doesn't make sense. And so, if you have a a difficulty with your conviction of your goodness and your belief in yourself and all of that stuff, y- you probably are are, are more safe. <laughs> In terms of having to get into these kinds of things, if you're lacking that, and many of us have trouble, you know, with having that kind of conviction, you're vulnerable. It, whether uh, you don't have to be autistic uh, or gay to <laughs> to do that, but
1: you're could, ju- could I? Could I? Uh, yeah, you're more vulnerable. There's something I'm dying to ask you because it's a bit of a debate that's raging in in Ireland and England, which is. Um, uh, some people argue that there shouldn't be gender clinics, that it's too specific and that it's almost it's, it's negating all the other aspects of the human, if you follow me, and they'd be better off in a larger kind of a, a larger setting. And some people argue very vociferously that there should be because it, it makes it a more specialist. I, I, I know you've worked within this so far and I know you'd have a kind of a very long term perspective. Where do you come down on that now? Now that it's all changed, if you follow me, now that the numbers are skyrocketing.
2: You know, uh, I I think we have to have gender clinics that have a more nuanced understanding of where these kids are coming from and who don't just accept, uh, you know, you must if you even think you're trans, you must be trans, which is that that ladder that they get on and can't get off. To me, they still can, can benefit. I mean, you people as therapists know that, that these people need support of uh, some description. My problem is the kind of uh, approach with the affirmative approach it is just not a sensible approach. It's way too quick. It doesn't give people time to grow and think and consider options. And that's what we need in our clinic. But I I wouldn't do away with a clinic, but, you know, it it would be a lot different than it is right
0: now. (laughs) What really, that's such good advice and that's so wise. And I hope that as we try to grapple with the changing population, that that is a nuanced perspective that more clinics will adopt to become, you know, better suited care for these kids. So I, I, I think we're at the end of our time, but it's been so great to have you on, um, Susan, and we're oh, really for grateful for all of the wisdom and experience you brought to our discussion today.
2: Great. Well, I, I, I value what you're doing, so I, I really want you to keep
1: going at it. <laughs> it's, it's a hard slog. Thank you. To, uh... Thanks,
0: thank you so oh. much.
1: That means a lot, really. It really does. Thank you. Good.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is sponsored by Rhyme and Genspect, and listener support means a lot to us. The best way to help is to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Follow
1: us on social media, and if you'd like to become a patron, you'll have access to weekly transcripts of the show, special Q&As, and you can join our listener community. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod.
0: Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.